0: 2 Samuel 15, review quickly, we've seen that Absalom disguises himself. He's engaged in revolution, if you haven't been in the class. He's engaged in revolution to overthrow the hierarchy of his nation, to overthrow David. And he disguises himself um, in religious dress and religious language. Remember, he he has the appearance of a Nazarite. He flatters people. He pretends to be concerned about people you remember that he positions himself in the gates so that he can monopolize and um, exploit any potential concern or need or hurt in the, in the kingdom. And uh, he sees the hurts and the concerns as opportunities to promote himself and to vilify David. We've seen him vilify David, and that's, that's a great lesson in and of itself. If you can vilify David, David was a giant killer People sang songs about David, and now people hate David? I mean, people vilified Jesus. Imagine that, vilifying Jesus. So if Jesus can, David can be vilified, anyone can be vilified, right? That's what Absalom is doing. And, uh, and all of this was so that he could steal the hearts of the people, undermine the leadership, <coughs> um, gain a faction to eventually make his move, and take the the throne of David, which, of course, is revolution. Um, Revolution not just against David, because David is God's appointed king, but also revolution against God, ultimately, at the end of the day. Amen? All right, so that's a review. Let's start in verse 7, starting in verse 15. (laughs) And I have the the crazy cough that everyone else has, so we'll see how it goes. Verse 7, And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gesher in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. You will remember that he was in exile. He was being uh, harbored as a fugitive by his father-in-law. And David wasn't allowing him to come back to Jerusalem, to the capital city. But eventually he manipulated his way back into David's graces, back into the capital city so that he could have access to political levers and political power. Um, but when David brought him back, he, he wouldn't let him go to the, to the um, palace. He was kind of in, under house arrest in Jerusalem. But he didn't get to, like, you know, come before, come before Congress or have a seat in the Senate, if you understand what I mean. Um, But now he's continuing his manipulation and he's saying to David, I want to go to to Hebron. Now, do you all remember the significance of Hebron in David's life? That's where that's where his kingdom started off in Hebron before he advanced to Jerusalem. He wants to now have permission to leave his house arrest, go back to Hebron so that he can um, pay his vows to Yeshua, uh, to Yahweh and to offer up his um, very noble sacrifices. And David, of course, is uh, not, in, not in the right place to uh, see through this charade. And so King David said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Verse 10, but Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. So you can see. His motives aren't exactly pure. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, while he's at church, you know, a leader in the church, in fact, the indispensable leader, offering the very sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor. It's David's right-hand man from his city, Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So you can see the, the revolution. We had the red flags of revolution that we saw in the earlier verses, but now we see that the revolution is gaining traction. Uh, the conspiracy is growing. And anytime you see the word conspiracy in scripture, it's nine times out of 10 referring to the satanic sin of revolution, of revolution. Uh, you can see some of the signs of revolution here, lies, charades, um, uh, political vilification of various people, um, secret meetings, secret messages, all of the above, right? Do we, th- do we have this going on in our political uh, situation in our country right now? <laughs> yes, yes, obviously. But it, of course, this sort of behavior is, is relegated only to politics, Right. Or do, or do you also have this in family dynamics and family politics? Church, oh, Brother Henry, not in church. <laughs> not in church. <sighs> yes, in church as well. You know, um, humans are political creatures. We are political. That's right. If there's more than one of us, there's going to be some politics. And politics is not necessarily bad, but that word has a negative connotation. Uh, politics refers to this sort of absolute behavior and um and we don't want to be guilty of this not in our families for those of you who have big families the propensity for this sort of behavior is bigger right um and we don't want to be guilty of this in our church or in our town we want to be fair and square and judicial and righteous before the lord in all of our dealings amen all right and i think we need to cover this and probably cover it every year because this particular anti-authoritarian, uh, anti-hierarchy sin is so prevalent in America. So very prevalent in America. So let's look at the strategies. Maybe, uh, maybe you can help me with this. Um, considering the verses that we just read, what are some of the strategies that those who are possessed by the Absalom spirit um, tend to, uh, to utilize? What are some of the strategies of Absalom's? Secret meetings, that's right, secret meetings, good, the meetings before the meetings, that's right, clandestine, smoke-filled meetings, that's right, flattery, Flattery. very good, I have them all listed here, so far, you are two for two, two. that's good, what else, any others? Pandering and flattery, yes, those definitely go hand in hand slander defamation vilification especially of god's appointed leadership jealousy and envy driving the whole thing i mean what gives this guy so much ambition he gets up early in the morning just to cause trouble why is he so ambitious he's got no chill because he's filled with envy what else he he gathers groups you know people are saying you know, you know, there's some people I can't name names, but they've been saying they have some concerns, and we would like to maybe have a meeting. You know, <laughs> special meetings, huh? Like a oh, a click. Yeah, no, now, yeah, that is that actually is what a click is. What else? An appearance of of religiosity and helpfulness, and he's a servant. And he's performing his sacrifices. You would think someone engaged in such subterfuge wouldn't be going to church. But oh no, he's going to church. He's very churchy, very churchy. It's crazy the things that people can be doing secretly while also doing very religious good things. You know, they, there's a code of honor among thieves, right? You see that in mob movies and various things. These are murderers. And embezzlers. They're like stealing grandma's retirements, but meanwhile, they have some kind of honor code about how to treat each other. Like, what? How do you you, right? That's how but that's how we are. We like to pick and choose our honor codes. That's right. Good, good. I think y'all got most of them there. Let's start with the first one deception. He's lying, right? What does he say to David? Oh, your servant. He's not David's servant. Oh, but he calls himself David's servant. He's anything but David's servant. He lacks the covenantal virtue of loyalty. And, and loyalty, we lack loyalty in, in uh, American Christianity. Loyalty is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are certain people that own your heart, and you're supposed to be loyal to them. You're supposed to give them the benefit of the doubt. Amen? You're not supposed to receive accusations against them without two or three witnesses. You've got to do justly by them. Those are the people in your family, the people in your church, your leadership in your own town. There's people that own your heart, and you have to be loyal to them. There's very little loyalty in the world these days, very little loyalty. Um, and he, but he pretends it. He pretends it, doesn't it? And um, notice he says when he's going to engage in his, his uh, conspiracy and his overthrow, what's the uh, premise? Why is he going to Hebron? Ah, he's going to going to church. Yeah, he's going to do religious things. And is he going to do those things? He is going to do those things. But that's not the real reason. But if you were to say now, you know, I'm a little concerned that the reason you're going to Hebron with 200 people. I, you know I'm not sure, but I keep hearing things. There's like whispers. And, and if anybody of you have ever read the Psalms, that's one of the things David is constantly dealing with. It's just whispers and snakes in the grass and the trap of the fowler. You don't know the trap of the fowler? Like it's not out in the open. It's not like Goliath. It's subtle. It's uh, conspiracies in dark, cloudy, you know, smoke-filled rooms. He's constantly dealing with those things. And if he were to to act on his own intuition and say to Absalom, hey, this really looks a little shady. (gasps) How dare you? How dare you? Right? He maintains a plausible deniability at all times. See, Absaloms aren't um, uh, brutes. They're not um, uh, doofuses. They're very, very cunning and very, very shrewd. And no matter what they do, there will always be an alibi with the Absalom spirit. And uh, we all have this a little bit in our hearts. Let's not spend this entire morning looking or thinking about other people. But we have this in our own hearts. Um, we should make sure that whatever we're engaged in, that we're being faithful and we're being open and honest about what we're actually up to. Amen? So Absalom engages in this plausible deniability. Look at Psalm 55, verse 20. Psalm 55, verse 20. Kevin, I don't know. Did I send you the notes for this? Oh Look at what David is constantly dealing with. He says... My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. Now he's speaking here, scholars believe he's speaking here of Ahithophel, which we're going to speak on uh, later in the class. His speech was as smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. So is he talking about Goliath here? No, Goliath is a... one type of demonic um, attack against the church, but not the only attack, right? There's also the Absalom attack. There's the Goliath attack, and then there's the Absalom attack. All right, the second strategy, let's move on to this, uh, Psalm 39. Psalm 39. In this particular strategy, it's not clear on the surface of the text, but I want to show you in Psalm 39 what David's going through at this particular moment in his life. Y'all see, we're going to read through this together, and you tell me if you can figure out what's going on here. Psalm 39, 4. <clears throat> oh, am I the only one with this strange cough? My family and I have it. I know some of y'all had it. Oh, it's awful. I feel like I've been coughing since 2020. Like, Am I, <laughs> am I the only one? I feel <laughs> uh, Psalm 39, verse 40, verse 4. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Oh, Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? So you can see his heart is hot within him. And he's praying, God, you know, how much longer do I have to live? Let me know how fleeting I am. Right. Give me my, you know, what is it when the doctor gives you how much time you have left? Just give me how much time do I have? Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. All right, so he's going through something where his, his heart is burning. He's praying for, the, for God to explain to him, like, when am I going to die? And he's musing on the fact that the lifespan of mankind is just a vapor. Um, verse 7, you can see. Some of, the, uh, some of the other uh, manifestations of this situation. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Right, can anyone tell what David's going through? You'd have to read the whole psalm to really get it. But scholars say that at this time when Absalom is taking advantage of David and deceiving him, that he's taking advantage of the fact that David is, has a serious illness. That he's very very sick and um, and if you continue to read psalm 39 it does it makes some good sense we can't know for certain but it seems as though david is having the very same situation that job was having right what was the situation job was having god put him to the test and he was suffering you know grievous suffering but then his friends and and we don't always realize this but if you study Job very carefully his friends aren't just random people they are members of his cabinet They are um, lieutenants in his kingdom. Job is a king. And not only are they um, trying to get him to confess sin, but they are seeing the whole situation as God's curse against him. And the sickness and the suffering as evidence that God has cursed him and that he should be um, dethroned and they should um, usurp power. That's sort of the context of Job. That's sort of the context of David and Absalom, that Absalom is taking advantage of David's illness and is there any plausible reason for why God might be cursing David and making him sick? <coughs> the Uriah, the Bathsheba. But, but is God cursing David with sickness at this moment in his life because of Uriah and Bathsheba? No, God said very clearly that the son will die. And after that, he married uh, Bathsheba and God blessed that marriage and gave them the son Solomon. Solomon. God has forgiven David. David is no longer under God's curse. But you could see all the ammunition that Absalom has to make this play against David's authority. And that's what Absalom, the Absalom spirit, the demonic spirit of Absalom does. It, it compels um, rebellion and autonomy. And, and that's what exactly what Absalom is doing. He's taking advantage of David's sickness to make his play, to make his play for Hebron. And is there anyone else in the Bible who, appeared to be cursed and um lieutenants in his kingdom so to speak used that opportunity to try to usurp power isn't that the life of jesus didn't he uh, he appeared to be cursed right and no and no doubt the devil and all of his minions gloated and and uh and were filled with pride and and were excited that he finally yes god has cursed him and that, I believe that's a little bit behind the scenes of what's going on in the wilderness where Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. And, and Satan is saying, if you're the son of God, then why are you being treated this way? You know, I wouldn't treat you this way. <laughs> so David, just like Job, is a type of Christ here. And Absalom, of course, is a type of of whom? Of Satan. That's right. Of Satan. Good. Good. <clears throat> um, let's move on to the next uh, technique. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, next strategy. Notice in verses 7 through 9, if we can read this, (laughs) David is totally clueless. Y'all see this? Look at verse 7 and 9. Can we read this from the screen? And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron, for your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gesher and Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. Does David have any concept that there is something going on? He completely doesn't know. He doesn't know. He's, he's the last to know. And this is one of the strategies of the Absalom mind and of revolution. And that is that you don't tell the people who are in charge the actual problems. You keep them in the dark about it. What is Absalom constantly doing? He positions himself in the gates so that he can receive all the hurts and all the concerns so that he can exploit all of those. And and does he bring them up the ladder to David? Does he tell David and all of David's deputies? David has a lot of loyal people working for him. They could have been solving these problems, but he doesn't doesn't deal with the problems that way because he doesn't want the problems to be solved because the concerns aren't for the kingdom. The concerns are opportunities to defame and vilify David. You understand what I'm saying? So he shows no concern. He tells no concerns to the David. So that when he goes to David and says, I'm your servant, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm repentant. You know, I, I know I did. I, I, I did murder someone not too long ago, um, but God's forgiven me. I want to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and uh, and everything's great. And David says, go in peace. Right. <clears throat> so <clears throat> if he were to tell David the concerns, then David might be able to do something about it. But the Absalom spirit, the, the sin of revolution, makes sure that the father doesn't know about the problem, right? Or the pastors don't know about the problem, or the actual the sheriff doesn't know about the problem. You keep those things separate and uh, secret. Right. Now does that mean that Absalom doesn't spread the concern? What do you think? Does he spread the concerns and the problems and the he spreads it very much, as we're going to see. He spreads it. He just makes sure that he doesn't spread it to anyone who could actually do something about it, right? <clears throat> next, next strategy is that the Absalom spirit, the, the sin of revolution, um, develops a faction. It develops a faction. Now, how many men did Absalom, did Absalom gain to his, his team? Said so 200 men, that's right. Um, now, why does he need a faction, though? Because he can't overthrow the legitimate heir to the throne, David, by himself. He needs numbers. And so as he tells concerns, and he keeps them out of the ear of the hierarchy, of the actual people who can solve the problem, I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned about that. And in my personal experience, people like this, they use vague ideals. They use vague ideals. I'm concerned, and then there'll be a vague term right? I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about this. And they tell it to all sorts of people that they can, not to the hierarchy, because what is the ultimate goal? To gain numbers, to gain numbers. That's right. The Absalom spirit always develops a faction. What does Satan do in his revolution against God? He deceives. He does all of these things that we've talked about, but he takes a third of the angels with him. See, the revolutionary spirit, one of the aspects of the revolutionary spirit is that uh, misery loves company, right? And that bitterness, the bitterness and the envy that's driving that revolution, what does bitterness do? What does the Bible say bitterness does? It spreads, it spreads, that's right, like gangrene. That's right. (laughs) You can always tell the difference between someone with legitimate concerns, someone who has a legitimate concern for an institution or for a family and really does want to stand up for justice and righteousness. You can tell the difference between that person and a person who's using concerns as a club and as a way to vilify the leadership. You can tell the difference in that they tell the people who can actually make a difference, right? And they don't tell everybody else. That's one of the ways you can tell the difference between revolution and what we should be engaged in, which is reformation. Reformation, that's right, that's right. <coughs> Amen. Um, now, another reason he, he gains a faction is obviously to pull political leverage, right? To pull political leverage, right? Um, <coughs> Uh, moving on, next strategy. Let's see how many do it. How many did we guess before at the beginning? I got quite a few to go. Ten more minutes. Next strategy is secret meetings. Uh, what verse shows us the secret meetings? Y'all see those? Y'all see the secret meetings? That's right. He's going to Hebron to offer up his sacrifice, and he says, "But when you hear the code words, you know, when you hear the the temple, the uh, the uh, trumpet blast." then everyone's going to say the secret password, right? Um, Absalom is king in Hebron. How do they all know the meaning of the trumpet? Yeah, because they're having the meetings before the meetings. That's right. They're engaged in clandestine revolution. They're not engaged in in reformation. You can see through verses 7 through 9, David's clueless of all of this. He doesn't know the code words. He doesn't know that the trumpet is going to be blasted, right? He doesn't know that there's secret meetings. You ever you ever uh, have an incident that goes on in our country and you turn on the TV and you flip through the channels and they all say exactly the same thing, even using the same like vocabulary, words that are not common? Like, hey, what's going on here? Did everyone just come to this on their own? No, they're getting their orders from the AI bot at... Uh, at, um, uh, what is it called, Reuters, or whatever. They're, they all, they're having meetings before the meetings. They, there's been uh, secret meetings going on. That's why everyone in the particular media has the same propaganda points and says the same exact things over and over again, all right? And I think as Christians, when we see that there needs to be change and there needs to be concerns dealt with, that the throat thing is getting me... <coughs> We should be open. Amen. We should speak our mind and we should do it in the proper ways that whatever the particular institution is in the family, in the church or in the in the state, we should follow the system if at all possible right? If at all possible, and be open. And if there's a vote and we lose the vote, then we lose the vote. We don't have to be engaged in insurrection or revolution. Amen? We can wait on the Lord to change hearts and change minds. We don't have to take it into our own hands. All right, look at Psalm 91 verse 3. You can see David, he doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes. He says, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. The snare of the fowler is a trap set where the bird is unaware of it. He doesn't know where uh, all the the problems are coming from. And who knows what Psalm 2 is all about? Psalm 2 is the psalm of conspiracy. It's written by David because David is dealing with conspiracies against himself, the anointed one, but they typologically point to Jesus Christ as well. Right? Good, good. So you say, but Pastor Brandon, how can Absalom um, be doing a bad thing when so many good people are following him? Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. So he's been building his faction. He's been spreading his concerns. Right. But here, but the Bible tells us, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. See, this is very important. not every church split when people split a church. Not everyone involved in that is a bad person. A lot of times you can have an Absalom at the center of the faction, but you have just simple people that don't know anything about what's going on. The same thing in political revolutions that have happened all over the world, right? Throughout the you know, history of mankind, you can have political revolutions and they can be genuinely evil, but you got good people caught up in the trenches, caught up in the fights. Well, I mean, yeah, these guys are tricked just as much as David is tricked right and absalom you know he does have some good points you know david is sick he is apparently on his deathbed maybe hey maybe we need to establish the successor now you can imagine how and absalom's very good with the people he's popular he's a people's person you know and and david did remember he did murder uriah right and he and he cheated with uh, bathsheba you could see how if you were just a nobody who didn't know the inner workings of Nathan and David and God, and you weren't in the capital city, that somebody like Absalom could easily convince you, well, maybe this is the right thing to do. But God says they didn't know. They weren't, uh, they weren't uh, bad people necessarily. Absalom is masquerading with kindness and secrecy and the long hair. Remember the long hair. And he's handsome. He's taken Nazarite vows. He's offering sacrifices in Hebron. Wow. Seems like God's choice. Seems like God's choice. In verse 12, look what he does. The next strategy. He's divisive. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, so while in church, while leading church, offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So why does Absalom not mess with Joab? Remember Joab? He's not a Christian. But Absalom doesn't say anything to Joab. Does Joab know about any of this? No? Why doesn't Absalom talk to Joab? He doesn't talk to Joab. What about um, Hushai, which we're going to learn later, um, is very loyal to King David. Absalom never talks to Hushai, right? Right? But Absalom knows who to talk to, and he talks to Ahithophel, and he drives a wedge between Ahithophel and David. That's a part of the strategy of uh, revolutionists. That's the strategy of the Absalom spirit to, to, uh, to drive a wedge uh, between the leadership in order that they might have more political leverage for eventual usurpation. Make sense? All right? Don't be an Ahithophel. Amen. Now, Ahithophel, if you continue to read the Psalms, um, is likened unto Judas. So Absalom is Satan, Ahithophel is Judas, um, failing in his covenantal loyalties, and David is is Jesus, typologically, as we're reading this typologically. All right, and five more minutes. The last strategy. I think this is very important. Um, The Absalom spirit is alive and well in America, in businesses, in our nation, politically, in families, the bigger the family, the more possibility you're going to have this spirit inside of it. Um, and uh, even among your children, it, your, the uh, Absalom spirit can infect your own children so that they engage in this sort of revolutionary behavior with their parents, rather than trusting God and tr- trusting the process that God has ordained. And of course, it's in, it's in churches as well, obviously. Um, Abimelech, not Abimelech, Absalom, he continues to go to church the entire time. You can, yeah, right? You can see him in verse 12. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, while offering the sacrifices, in the middle of church, hey, go get a Hithafel. Right? Man, that's, that's sad. So anyway, this is the, the last of this uh, particular class, and I hope that it has gone a long way to inoculate you from the very, very um, rampant sin of revolution that's in the hearts of americans and american christianity too we're americans after all we're humans after all um it was one of the first sins that was ever committed by the devil and it's a sin that's continuously committed to this day and it's one we need to be wary not to we don't want to be one of the innocent people marching off to hebron like dupes right and we also don't want to be the absalom um, engaged in all of this subterfuge and conspiracy and revolution amen Amen. Any final closing questions on our series? Yeah, Yeah, gullibility is not a Christian virtue. It's a sin. That's right. And um, that doesn't mean that they necessarily went to hell. But hopefully when they learn their lesson later, because they're going to learn their lesson, this revolution that Absalom engages in um, destroys the kingdom. I mean, it just torments the kingdom it tears at all the smithereens and uh, and that's what happens when 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 an absalom gains traction in any community uh, there's only there's going to eventually be uh, factions division um, confusion and just chaos but hopefully these people after because it's a lot easier to interpret these things and understand these things when you look back in time than when you're in the middle of it hopefully they learn their lesson eventually and and confess their gullibility repent and work on their covenantal loyalty with david which they should have been uh working on all along so yes it's a sin that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to hell or anything um if they repent good question all right that's it Uh, marley has a question or a comment Well, at this particular point, it's impossible for David to deal with it correctly because he doesn't even know that it's an issue. That's one of the, the tactics of Absalom is that he's making sure David doesn't know all of the various concerns and needs and hurts that he's exploiting. You know, David doesn't find out until Absalom already has a faction and already is positioned in Hebron and the trumpets blast. So, and and imagine if Early on in this, when there was only the red flags of revolution, not the actual revolution, you know, if, Ab- if David would have caught wind of the concerns and he would have tried to solve those concerns, do you think Absalom would have been satiated at that particular point? No, because you have to remember the concerns aren't to be solved. The concerns are opportunities for usurpation. The, 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 and, and that's the difference between correction and condemnation. You know what I mean? You can, you can tell when someone is being like the Holy Spirit, they will correct you. And there will be a huge opening for you to change your mind, to repent, to change. And, and there will be a, lot of, a ton of grace. Say hey, and, and when you do repent or confess, it'll be over with. You understand what I mean? But when someone is using your sins to condemn you, there's nothing you say or do that won't be used against you in their mind. And even if you were to correct that concern, it would be like how you corrected it. And then there would be another concern and another concern because the point isn't correction. The point is condemnation. And so there's no way for David to, to win against this other than to be wise, wiser early on. Of course, it's difficult. He's very sick. Um, but if he would have been wiser early on and he wouldn't have been a compromiser with God's law, he wouldn't have this problem. He should have executed Absalom many years earlier when Absalom committed vigilante murder but he didn't do it. That's why in our first class, we showed that the seeds of reformation, the seeds of revolution are sown in the very beginning by weak uh, leadership that's not doing what they're supposed to do according to the law of God. You know, I mean, how many people end up doing something terrible, uh, even murdering, vigilante murder, for example, because the the civil officials didn't follow the law of God. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. And that's exactly what happens in Absalom's case. Who did he murder? The guy who raped his sister, that guy should have been murdered. That guy should have been executed by the king. None of this would have happened. But David, David had uh, grown weak and uh, there was major lacks and actual concerns in his in his leadership that gave way to this to this revolution. That doesn't make the revolution right. Um, but uh, does David's you know, David's not perfectly squeaky clean in this either. Good. <laughs> Good question. Uh, somebody else had one. Josh. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's very much, very similar. I mean, they all were probably the sons, David had a lot of terrible sons because he was a terrible father, because he married a bunch of people that he wasn't supposed to. Right? Um, this is a sin that is all over the Bible. It's it's not one that is commonly focused on in churches. It's but it's it's almost like it's like gluttony. We just assume everyone does it and it's okay. Um, and you don't talk about it. Um, but this sin is huge. It's all over the Bible. It's right in the first chapters of Genesis with Satan and Eve. Uh, it's right after the, the, um, the flood with uh, Ham and Canaan. What they're actually engaged in is, is, is not, it's not the fact that Noah got drunk. The point of the story is that they're engaged in revolution, this particular sin that we've been talking about. They aren't loyal to God's ordained uh, hierarchies within their family. And it goes on all throughout the Bible. This is the sin of Judas it, it's just one of the major themes in the history of redemption, this particular sin. And, um, and I think uh, the opposite of this, what is the opposite of the sin of revolution? Well, that's the, the, yeah, the fruit of covenantal loyalty. And, and honestly, covenantal loyalty is just another word for love. Just love and being loving toward other people that that, own, that our hearts owned by. Like people own your hearts and you own their hearts and you're to love and do justly by them. Revolution throws all of that into a into a tailspin. That's good. Amen. What what's faster, revolution or reformation? Revolution, revolution is fast. See, that's what we want with that quick fix. But when you when you engage in revolution, um, God doesn't bless it. God doesn't bless. You know, even if you might, you think in your own mind, you have a good uh, ends in mind. God doesn't bless means that he doesn't ordain. You know what I mean? And this is true in every sphere, in the civil sphere, in the church sphere, and in the family sphere. Good. All right, we got to go. We're five minutes over. Y'all have a great Lord's Day.